about the lawyers for being hypocrites. And if you weren't with us last week, we talked about that word hypocrite and what that means. It actually comes from a Greek word where they were actors. It means two-faced. That in front of one group of people, you act a certain way. In front of another group of people, you act another way. And we talked about how the Pharisees on the outside looked pure and holy, but yet on the inside were not devoted to the Lord in any way whatsoever. And we talked about how us, as Christians... Sometimes we do the same thing. We have a certain way we talk and act at work. We have a certain way we talk and act at home. And then we have a certain way we talk and act at church. We talked about being hypocrites. I mentioned to you the story that somebody one time asked me, um, said something part of the problem they have with Christianity is that Christians are all hypocrites. And I said, I don't argue with that in any way whatsoever. We all are hypocrites. But we're also trying to become the men and women of God that God has called us to be. So, that was what we talked about last week. And we did the first few verses here of Luke 12, verse 1. Just a quick review. It says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. We talked about those things that we only think about, those things that we only fantasize about, those programs, those websites, those whatever that we go to. Those things done in darkness and secret, the Lord knows about. Now, we don't say that to scare you. We don't say that to put fear in you. But we say that to say, let's bring these things to light and become the men and women of God we're going to be. Now, why do we hide those things? We hide those things because we're afraid. We're afraid people are going to find out what we're really like. We're going to afraid that people are going to find out what I really do. They're going to be afraid. I'm afraid they're going to find out what I really act like. And so, therefore, I put on this fake face this hypocritical face, and I act a certain way in public, and I never let people see what I'm really like. I walk in fear of people trying to find out who I really am. With that being said, it takes us to what we're going to talk about today, that fear, verse 4 of Luke 12. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. See, we're afraid of what other people think, So we act a certain way when really we should just be concerned with what God thinks of us. That's all that matters. That's the only thought that matters is what does God think of me? Because when I put this fear of what other people think, what's the worst that someone can do to me? According to verse 4, the worst that someone can do to me is kill me. That's the worst they can do. And then I have entrance into heaven. But God, in verse 5, he has the power to take my life. He also has the power to determine my eternal destiny. That's powerful. Not only take my physical life, but my spiritual, eternal destiny, be it heaven or hell. Now, here's the problem. You look at verse 5. Just listen to this verse one more time. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That kind of shoots down all these pictures we have of this great loving God, doesn't it? We talk about how much God loves us, and he loves us unconditionally in his grace and his mercy. Then when you look at verse 5, and God just sounds like he's got a really bad temper and a chip on his shoulder. And you should be really scared of him because you never know what God's going to do. You never know what he's going to say. So you walk in fear of God because he's God and you're not. That's not what that verse is saying. That word fear in the original language is where we get our word phobia. But that interesting is that word fear is also translated in the Bible reverence and awe. What this verse is really saying in verse 5 is we have such a deep reverence, such a deep awe for who God is that I only care about who He is. I only care about what He thinks about me. I don't walk in fear of my boots shaking 
around God because I know he loves me and he cares for me, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I have such a deep reverence and awe for who he is and what he's done for me that therefore I want to live for him. If you're walking in fear of God, you don't understand the love that he has for you. Now, there is a reverence. There is a all. He is God. I am not. And I respect that. I use that term healthy respect a lot. You have a healthy respect for who God is, and you walk in that reverence and that all of who God is. And because of that, I therefore live my life for him rather than living it for myself. The context of this shows that God does care. Because when you go to verses 6 and 7, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten by four God. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than the many sparrows. See, this is not a fear thing. This is an all thing. Verse 6, if God knows all about the sparrows, wow, how much does he care about me? If God knows in verse 7, the very hairs on my head, how much does he know about me? See, I I read those verses in 6 and 7, and I don't shake in fear. I hit my knees in reverence and in awe, saying, Wow, Lord, of the 6 billion, 7 billion people in this world, you choose to care about me? Lord, of of the countless numbers of birds, and you know them. Verse 6, now one is forgotten by you, and yet you care about me. Verse 7, the hairs on my head that you can number, and you still care about me. See, I am in all of that. That's why he gets my praise, my worship, my reverence, because he's God. And that's why I respect that. And that's that healthy respect. First Peter 5, 7, if you're taking notes, says, Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. God cares for you more than you can ever know. If he puts more value in you than the birds, and he knows all about the birds in verse 6, if he puts more value in you than the hairs on your head, which he already knows about, how much does he love you and just want to be with you? He cares for you. And that is what gives us this healthy respect, this reverence, this fear, this awe of who he is. Because of that, I want to do verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. See, because of everything the Lord has done, I have this, all this reverence for him. I know he cares about me, verse 6. I know he loves me, verse 7. So therefore, verse 8, I want to confess him before men. Now that word confess is not the way we normally use that word. When we think of the English language and the word confess, we think it means to admitting something. In the original language, it doesn't mean that. Confess literally means to agree with. So when you say that you're confessing Jesus, it means that you're agreeing with what Jesus said. So as you agree with what Jesus says, you are saying that you are a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. That's what the word Christian means. So when I confess Christ, I'm not just acknowledging that he exists. I'm saying I choose to live my life according to the standards that he set up. Now there's a huge difference there. What, 70%, 80% of people in America confess God. They claim to be Christians. But how many of them are their lifestyles lining up with what Jesus taught? See, that's what that word confess means. I agree with what Jesus taught, so therefore my lifestyle lines up with him because I choose to follow him. Now, do you realize how big of a statement that is? 
It's not just merely acknowledging that God exists. It's not just believing in God or believing that Jesus died. It means I am confessing him, agreeing, and lining up. Now, before you say that very simply, you have to understand when you choose to confess Christ, you're asking for a lot of problems. Six billion, seven billion people in the world, as soon as you say you're a Christian and confess Christ, that means you're telling billions of people that they're wrong and that if they would die, they're going to hell. When you confess Christ, that means you are telling the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, that they're all wrong. Because when you confess Christ, you're saying that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. That's why it's such a big deal to confess Christ. See, we don't talk about these verses that much, but stay in Luke 12. Jump ahead to verse 49. Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. For some reason, those verses don't get put on Christian t-shirts too much. But Jesus did say that. See, as soon as you make a claim for Christ, you are going to cause division. If you don't want to cause division, just tell people you believe in God. And everybody will be like, oh, we believe in God. And if you really want to get along with everybody, tell people you believe in God and that your God just goes by a different name. And my God and your God are really the same. We just go by different names that we can all hug and sing Kumbaya and everybody will be really happy. It doesn't work that way. As soon as you confess Christ, you are saying that you are a Christian, you are saying that you follow Jesus Christ, and you believe in the teachings of Christ, which means, verses 49 through 53, there will be division. That is a fact of Christianity. That's why it's such a huge deal when Jesus says, if you confess me, I'll confess you. What we would say in our everyday language today is, hey, if you stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. It's a big deal to claim to be a Christian. And I think a lot of times we throw out that word Christian so often with really not understanding what it means. To confess Christ is to agree with him, to follow his teachings and accept the fact there will be division because you're making a stand for the Lord. When you are a Christian, you're making a very strong stand biblically, morally, spiritually on the things of this world. That's a huge deal. That's why also verse 9 He who denies me before him will be denied before the angels of God. See, a lot of times we don't think we deny God. But when you really look at what the word confess means, and the opposite of confess is denied, when you claim to be a Christian, but aren't having the lifestyle and not following it, you're kind of denying him. Now, be careful here, folks. Don't take this the wrong way of I still sin and things like that. We're going to get to that verse in a little bit. We're talking about taking a public stand for where you believe and what you believe in the Lord. Confessing the Lord with your mouth. Now, verse 10. See, here's the thing. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. See, that's the beauty of it. See, if people really understood what Christianity is, why would you not want to accept it? I firmly believe when someone chooses to reject Christ, they don't fully understand what it is. Because when you really understand what Christianity is, that every sin has been forgiven. And there's this, this grace, this love, this mercy, this care, this, this unconditional love that God gives you. Why would you not want that? See, look at that phrase one more time in verse 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Let's build on this a little bit. Can you go to 1 John, please? 1 John. 
First John chapter 1. What an amazing thing it is to think about that all of our sins can be forgiven in Christ. All that baggage, all that junk, all that trash can be forgiven. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, I'm making a confession of Christ, I'm walking in the truth, and I'm following him. Verse 8, But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, here's the thing. There's some of us that walk around in verse 8. We have no sin. I haven't done anything wrong. You're deceiving yourself. Some of us, verse 10, I, haven't, I didn't do that. I have not sinned. We're a liar. The truth is found in verse 9. We confess our sins. That word confess again, to agree with. I look at the standards that God has set up in the Bible, and I confess, I agree, I have missed those standards, I have now sinned. But he doesn't leave us empty-handed. Verse 9, Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's grace, mercy, and love. You know, some people have a problem with that. I remember years ago, it's probably been about 10 plus years ago, we were doing a discipleship class out here at church. We were sitting right in the back of the sanctuary there. We had all the chairs circled up doing discipleship. And one of the first discipleship teachings is this idea of, of sin being dealt with through Jesus. You know, Christianity 101, Jesus forgives us of our sins. So we're sitting there talking about this, and there's this person that got really bothered. This person was kind of a fringe person out here at church. They came a little bit, sometimes did, sometimes didn't. So I was really excited that they started coming out to discipleship. So we started talking about this idea of Jesus forgiving all of our sins. person raised their hand and said, Are you telling me that all those murderers, all those rapists, all those pedophiles, all those people can do those horrible, unspeakable acts and they can be forgiven in Jesus? I said, Yeah. Isn't that the most amazing thing of grace, love, and mercy? There may be consequences to their actions on this earth, but they can be forgiven. This person got so mad, so angry, got up left and started walking back to Hamler, because that's where they lived. They came with people, but they didn't care. They wanted out of here so bad that they left and started walking back to Hamler. Now, their family came out here to church. They kept coming, and he never came back. That bothered him so much. This idea that this sin can be forgiven so cleanly, so fully, so completely in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. I love that part. I love the part that no matter what trash or baggage I bring into my relationship with Christ, that my initial reaction with him is he says, James, I want to set you free from all that sin. That is grace and mercy. And as 1 John 1, 9 says, read this one more time with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All, all unrighteousness. Does he want us to keep in sin? Of course not. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Hey, the goal is to not sin. I mean, the goal is to live a righteous life. But look at verse 2. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
See, what a beautiful thing that is. To know that the true teaching of Christianity is you can bring all your past before the cross and it can be made right. Now jump back, though, to Luke. Because there's this little phrase in verse 10, Luke 12. It says in verse 10, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him, but to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. See, there's one sin. I believe Matthew calls it the unforgivable sin. There's one sin that can't be forgiven. And that one sin that can't be forgiven is to reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, the Holy Spirit's job, one of the Holy Spirit's jobs, I should say, is to take non-believers and point them towards salvation in Jesus. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to non-believers' hearts, telling them you want to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus can heal you from this sin. To reject the Holy Spirit's leading is to reject Jesus, which is the unforgivable sin, because you have no Savior to forgive you of that. It's a very dangerous thing as a non-believer to reject the Spirit's leading and guiding to bring you into a point of salvation. Because that is the only sin that is unforgivable. Now think about that for a second. That's the only sin that's unforgivable. Think of everything else that Christ so freely took care of on the cross. See, now put this all together. Verse 4, I'm not afraid of man, because what can man do to me? Verse 5, I have such a awe, reverence for what God has done and God is doing. Verse 6, he cares for me. Verse 7, he loves me. So therefore, verse 8, I confess him before people because I want people to know what Jesus has done. Now, I understand verse 9, people will deny that. I understand verse 10, people will completely reject it. So when I see people denying and rejecting God, what am I supposed to do? Verse 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now why don't we make a bigger stand for the Lord? I mean, if we understand the eternity of heaven and the eternity of hell, why don't we take a bigger stand for the Lord? There's a lot of reasons. I think there's two main reasons we don't. Reason number one we already talked about. We don't want to burn bridges with people. You know, i got to work with these people the rest of my life. You know, if I go around telling them all about Jesus and I get rejected by that, that's going to make work pretty tough. Yeah, i, I got to live with my family here, so let's just keep the God thing on the down low for a little bit and let's not make a big deal out of it. Part of being an on-fire, born-again believer for Christ is that when you take a stand for the Lord, division will come. I'm just telling you right now, bridges will be burned, relationships will be hurt. Because when you take a stand for the Lord, that is the side effect of that. Once again, when I claim to be a Christian and someone says, I'm not a Christian, that means I'm believing that when they die, they go to hell. That, that, that is a tough thing. And I think that's a lot of times the reason why we don't share our faith as openly as we should or we could because we don't want to lose those relationships. I tell you, better to lose a relationship on this earth for a little bit to gain a relationship for all of eternity in heaven. If it's worth seeing a bridge be burned down here for a season to know that that person may come to know Christ later on, it is worth it. It's completely worth it. Don't allow that fear of what people think or what people will say to keep you from sharing. Now, the other reason why we normally don't share so much, I think it comes back to this verse right here about the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. A lot of times we don't share as much as we should is because we don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I mean, they're going to ask me Bible questions. I don't have the answer. So I don't want to say the wrong thing. So instead of saying the wrong thing, I simply say nothing at all. Now think about that for a second. 
You're putting that much emphasis on you. Your shoulders are that broad to carry someone's salvation for all of eternity. Your tongue is that powerful that you can lead people to Jesus. No, you can't. See, that's the thing. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to mess it up. I remember when uh, Dawn and I were living in McClure. We had an apartment in McClure. And Dawn was out doing some recycling at the recycling bin in McClure. She came back and she said, hey, there's a couple guys out there sitting in the truck. I really feel the Lord wants us to uh, witness to them. Which is really Dawn's way of saying, hey, I want you to come with me and witness to them. Because I feel the Lord is leading you. Dawn's really good at telling me what the Lord is leading me to do. So the Lord was leading Dawn to tell me to go do that. So... We, we go around the apartment and try to find some recycling just to make it look like we're not just going there to talk to them. So we go do the recycling, and they're still sitting in the truck. So you go over, and you kind of start up a conversation with them. You know, hey, what's going on? You know, we're James and Dawn. We live here. You know, McClure's a small town. It didn't go good. It didn't go good in any way whatsoever. And I spent the whole time walking back to the apartment thinking, I'm never going to share Christ with anybody again. I mean, why didn't I say this? Why did I say that? Have you ever had that? Where you had a biblical conversation with somebody five minutes after the conversation? Why didn't I say that verse? Oh, man, I misquoted that verse. Why did I say that? What? And you spend the whole time rehashing in your mind the whole conversation. You eventually kick yourself so bad, you just want to go hide under a rock, pray that Jesus returns, and you're never going to tell anybody about Christ again. Now, that's what happened. Once you know what, months later, those two guys came knocking on their door at an apartment. One of them ended up getting saved. See, my, my conversation that was a complete, utter, hopelessness failure, God never fails. See, I, we put too much pressure on me. You know, I, I'm not saying the right thing, so I'll say nothing at all. Do you really think the kingdom of God is based on what you say? God is able to work through your mistakes. So let's say you totally botch it. Let's just say you totally mess it up. God, I firmly believe, will either give you another chance with that person, or you know what? God will just lead them to another believer to have them explain Christ to them. God's not going to let somebody go to hell based on my failures of communication. Somebody will go to hell over them choosing to reject Jesus Christ. Don't put too much pressure on your shoulders. Now, does this mean that we don't have to do anything? Because, you know, look right here in verse 11. Don't worry about how or what you should answer, what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So I don't worry about anything. I'm just going to go there, and the Spirit will lead. Amen. Sometimes He does. Sometimes I'm up here teaching, and I got my little scratch notes of certain things I want to cover, and a point comes out, and I think that point is really good, and I want to take notes on myself, because I sure didn't think of that. Lord, that was good. Where'd that come from? Sure didn't come from me. There's times when I'm talking to someone, it's like, where did that verse come from? Lord, thank you. You know, how am I quoting something out of Malachi? Amen. The Holy Spirit can do those amazing things in verse 12. And I think too often, when we know there's going to be a spiritual conversation, we get ourselves way too worked up, where sometimes we just need to go there in the power and the might of the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Lord, I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what they're going to ask. I don't know where this conversation is going to go. You guide and direct it. And we walk in faith. So does this mean we have no responsibilities at all? Of course not. Two verses on this. First one, please turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is an element of faith in understanding that the Spirit can and will provide those answers to questions that our human minds can't. And it's an amazing thing when you're in the middle of a godly conversation and you feel like the heavens are opening, the sun's on you, and you're just like, wow, Lord. 
This is what it means to be spirit-led. Those are amazing moments. But there's also other moments. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verse 15. Be diligent. Good old King James says, Study to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I have a responsibility as a believer to walk in faith and trust the Spirit will guide and direct my words. But I also have a responsibility as a believer to study. There's a responsibility to be in the Word of God, to be prayed up, to be meditating and focusing on these scriptures. If I have a big appointment with somebody coming up and I don't know where the conversation is going to go, you bet I'll fast and pray over that. But you know what? I'll also be in the Word. I'll be studying to say, Lord, I want to equip myself and I want to trust that you're going to use the Spirit to do this. Have you ever had that time where you go read devotions and you read that chapter, you read that devotional, and you get done, you close the book up and you say, I have no idea what I just read. I got nothing out of that in any way whatsoever. And you have to go back and actually relook at it to say, oh yeah, that's what it was about. So what happens then as believers, we close up that book and we say, see, why do we do devotions? You know, Pastor James is always saying, be in the Word, be in the Word. I'm in the Word. I get away from the Word, and I don't even remember what I read. I don't remember any of it. I don't have good memorization skills. I hear it all the time. I was never good at memorizing stuff in school. I was never good at studying stuff in school. Okay, but we're dealing with the Holy Spirit here, not school. So yeah, fine, you read the devotion, and guess what? You get nothing out of it. I believe if you go in with a pure heart and open heart to say, Lord, use this, that maybe that next day, maybe that next week, maybe that next month, you will be in a God conversation with somebody, and boom, the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance those verses that you read weeks ago that you thought you didn't remember. You were diligent to study and to present yourself to Christ, saying, I'm going to let go of time in my day to learn and study the Word, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will bring this to my remembrance when it's time. It's an amazing thing what the Lord does. And there's been times where I've read devotionals, walked away from those devotionals, saying, Lord, I don't get anything out of this. And once you know what, that same day, someone comes up, it's that exact same devotional. God says, be prepared, because you never know what's coming. There's an element of faith and trust with the Holy Spirit, but there's also an element of being diligent ourselves to know and understand. John chapter 14 says this, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What a beautiful verse that is. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance those things I need to know at that moment and at that time. And that's why I'm diligent to prepare and to work. I'm diligent to get out there and study because I don't know what I'm going to run into. But the Lord does. So I'm always in prayer, always in the Word, being prepared for whatever comes my way, trusting the Spirit will do it. So put this all together again. Chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't walk in fear of being a fake person, because who you really need to fear and respect is God in verse 5. He cares for you. So since He cares for me so much, as much as He cares for me more than the birds, He cares for me more than the hairs on my head, He cares for me. I want to go confess Him in verse 8. I realize in 9 and 10 that there's going to be people that reject that, so I trust that the Spirit will guide me in verses 11 and 12 as I go be a light and a witness for Him. Now with that build-up, it takes us to verse 13 which kind of seems like it's thrown in there. But I think it actually fits pretty good. Verse 13, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a strange verse, because it's just kind of like thrown in the middle of this great teaching. 
And this is not a small group. Jump back to verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered. Okay, how big of a group is Jesus teaching to? An innumerable multitude. I don't know what that means, but it means there's a lot. So Jesus, the way we can piece this together, just imagine here, it seems like this is how it goes. Jesus is speaking very eloquently in verse 12, for the Holy Spirit would teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Just like that, out in the middle of the open. Don't you hate people like that? This is the person that has to win every argument in the court of opinion. They're going to let everybody know everything that's going on. They're going to go around to every single person and say, do you know what this person did to me? And he's going to find out who's on his side, find out who's on the other person's side, and he's just going to keep going from person to person to person to person. I remember when years ago when I first started out here, there was a situation where there was a very difficult marriage happening, and somebody would call me up on a regular basis, and we'd talk for a long time, 45 minutes to an hour, just about the marriage and pray, think that we would finally reach this conclusion in faith. Well, then I found out later that once he got off the phone with me, he just called another person out here at church. 45 minutes to an hour, call another person at church. And we had this moment one time at church where we happened to be together, and someone said, we really need to pray for so-and-so. And the one person said, yeah, he calls me a lot, and we really talk. The other person said, well, he calls me a lot. And I said, well, he calls me a lot. And we started realizing that literally this person just kept calling everybody, explaining his side in his case, and making sure that everybody was on his side. It's a verse 13 person. Why is this person in the middle of a big crowd yelling out to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Because this person wants to make sure everybody's on his side. This is the person that instead of dealing with the situation quietly, confidentially, biblically, they just go around to person, to person, to person, and always want to whine and complain about what's going on. And do you know what they said about me? Do you know what they're doing to me? Do you know how tough work is? And what happens is they want to win the battle in the court of public opinion rather than spiritually. So how does Jesus handle this? Look at verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? Now, that seems like a really interesting verse by Jesus. But what Jesus really is saying is, listen, my calling, my ministry right now is not to judge these little matters. My ministry and calling right now is to prepare people for the kingdom of God, for their souls to be saved. And then he goes on and says, verse 15, and he said to him, Take heed and beware of the covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. See, instead of answering the question in verse 15, he just teaches. Verse 14, be careful what you get yourself pulled into. Be it at home, be it at work, be it at school. Because people will come up to you and try to pull you in to their drama, their problems, their situations to find out what side you are on. Sometimes the most biblical answer you can do is verse 14, is to stay out of it. I even do that with our kids at home. Some of you may disagree with this. They'll come in to me and Elias or Judah or Kenan or Laden will come in and say, Dad, they did this to me. My first response is, did you talk to them about it? No? Okay, well, go back and talk to them about it. And if you can't figure it out, come get me. I'm trying to train them. The first thing you do when you have a problem is go to the person that you have a problem with and try to deal with it. Don't just pull me right into it. See, and that's what we do in life. We start pulling people in. And then what do we do? Verse 15, make it a teaching moment. Do you realize Jesus never answered this guy's question or statement? He just taught. See, I wish I would have learned this years ago. Because when I, when I first started out here, people would contact me and, and, and say, well, this is the situation. What do you think? It doesn't matter what I think. 
I've reached the point now, generally speaking, if someone contacts me and says, here's the situation, we try to just follow it up with the scripture. Well, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Lord says. Let's stick to this. Let's keep our opinions out of it because I don't want to get pulled into things that have nothing to do with me. And let's just let the Bible speak for itself on how to handle these situations. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 18, please. Matthew 18. I firmly believe if we as a church and as Christians would follow Matthew 18, how many problems would be resolved? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, please. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Somebody wrongs you. Somebody offends you. Somebody hurts your feelings. What are you supposed to do biblically? You go to that person and that person alone and you try to deal with it. What do we do? We call up five other people first and say, do you know what they said about me? Do you know what they did? Matthew 18, you go to that person, that person alone, and you try to build a bridge of peace right then and there. Or we do this, we sound more biblical. Hey, I just wanted to talk to you for a second because this person really said this about me and I really wonder what you think I should do. So let me tell you everything they said first. No. If it's bothering you that much and you've prayed over it and you can't have peace in your spirit to let it go and you've tried to let the situation go and you really feel like the Lord's leading, not your flesh, because our flesh likes to argue and fight, but if the Lord says this is a thorn that has to be dealt with, you go, verse 15, to that person, that person alone. You tell them their fault alone. Now, if they don't listen, verse 16, but if you will not hear, take with you one or two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If the first initial meeting does not bring peace, that is when you have to possibly bring another person in with you. We have a tendency to skip point one and go right to point two. Hey, this person's done this. It really hurts my feelings. Will you come with me to go talk to him? No, 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 no. Don't make it gossip. Don't do just what we read there in Luke. Put it in the court of public opinion. Go to that person alone. If they don't listen, you do verse 16. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him become like you, a heathen and a tax collector. We have a tendency a lot of time to skip to point three. Let's just go right to the pastor. Let's go right to the church. And to let everybody know what's going on. No. Alone, then if you have to, another person, then if you have to, then bring it to spiritual leadership. If we would follow Matthew 18, can you imagine how different life would be? If people truly, when they felt wronged by you, would just go to you quietly, lovingly, confidentially, and in grace, saying, hey, you said this or did this, and this is how I took it. Can we talk about it? My goodness, how many problems would be resolved? Instead of going to everybody else first and bringing all this drama, but if we just follow the Bible. Verse 18, I surely say to you, whatever is bound, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on anything concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I don't want to put anybody down when I say this, but I hear verse 20 quoted a lot in the context of prayer. Yes, that is true in the context of prayer. Anytime you get two or three believers together, God is there. But God's also there when it's just one person. The context of verse 20 is in church discipline. Is this idea, if we follow Matthew 18 and do what the Lord says, how many problems would be resolved? Just think about this. We're all guilty of it. 
When something bothers us, just ask yourself, do I go to that person alone first and try to deal with it? If that doesn't work, then I bring another person in. Or how many times are we bothered by what somebody's done and instead of going to that person, we just tell everybody else. And we hide it under this disguise of, hey, could you really pray for this situation because this person did this, 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 and this. Now, I understand there's times of venting. I understand there's times of encouragement. But we also got to check ourselves sometimes. We got to really be careful. Am I doing Luke 12, verse 13, bringing this out in the court of public opinion so everybody's on my side? Or am I legitimately saying, I really just need prayer for this situation? We got to be careful in how we handle things. You know, we are held to a standard as Christians. And as Christians, if we're confessing Christ, We have a different moral standard on how we deal with things, how we act, what we say, what we do. And that moral standard of following the Bible separates us. Separates us. Your witness at work on how you talk about other people, your bosses, how you gossip, what you say, what you do at the lunch table, your witness at school, your witness at home, all those things. If we follow the biblical moral guidelines that God set up, how many problems do we solve Or how many should say, how many problems do we spare ourselves from by sticking to the truth of the word? Mara, if you want to come forward here for the final song. We're going to have to stop right there because verse 16 goes really good through verse 34. And I don't want to piece that together too much. I'd much rather deal with verses 16 through 34 as a big topic. But as they're getting ready here for the final song, just...